How can a loving God send people to hell? Is it possible to hold together God's goodness and God's judgment? If God is love, and if God loves humanity so much that he he even gave his son for us, how can he then be so angry that he's created a place of never-ending torment and punishment where he supposedly sends those people that he has lovingly made? I'm pretty sure that you have thought of these questions before. And as we read through some of the chapters in Revelation, as we get these uh, visions of eternity from the perspective of heaven, we come face to face with God's judgment. We hear and we read of his fierce wrath of tormenting punishments. And these questions come to mind. Uh, Several weeks ago, as part of this series, one of our sharp-thinking youth groupers was quick to come and see me at the end of church and say, how can a loving God send people to hell? It's a good question to be asking. It's an important question. Because without a reasonable answer, God and the reality of hell can just be dismissed. Without a reasonable answer to this question, we might have God portrayed as a tyrant who we would want to have nothing to do with. Without a reasonable answer to this question, God is eliminated as a philosophical conundrum. Or Christianity becomes classified as crazy or dangerous. Or without a clear understanding of the reality of hell... Hell and its devil is merely caricatured as a Halloween fantasy. And so it's not something to really think about or worry much about. As you put your profile on Facebook and record little things about yourself, the movies that you like, the jobs that you had, the places that you have studied, I'm sure Joe's Facebook profile is quite bare, There's a section where you can record your religion, your philosophical views and your religious views. One of my uh, Facebook friends records their religion as this. What's the point when I know I'm going to hell anyway? He believes in a hell, but he's not particularly concerned about it. How can a loving God send people to hell? In Revelation 15 and 16, we see that God's judgment in this world and in the future and his wrath is a very troubling reality. We can and should be asking the question, how can a loving God send people to hell? And what we do see here in this vision in Revelation is people who experience God's wrath and judgment. People who come into contact with it firsthand, and we get to see how they respond. Our perspective for understanding God's judgment and wrath is fairly limited. We can think about it, we can read about it, we can critique it, we can analyse it, we can assess it. 
But here in Revelation 15 and 16, we can listen in on, we can read about those who have experienced God's wrath and judgment firsthand. And so what if we listen in to them? Even those who were judged and see what they have to say. The dominant, the dominant voices in these chapters are those who belong to God, those who belong to Jesus, those who follow the Lamb who was slain, who was on the throne of all eternity. And the dominant voices praise God. Have a look with me again in chapter 15, verse 3. Chapter 15, verse 3, here they're singing a song, a song of Moses, the servant of God from the Old Testament, and the song of the Lamb, the Lamb Jesus. And what are they singing? Great and marvellous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. This is the song that those who belong to Jesus are singing in heaven. They are praising God. This is their favourite worship song. But they're not just bursting into this song because it's their favourite song and it's the one that's stuck in their head and they sing it in a mindless kind of way. This song they sing is a deliberate response to God's judgment. Let's go back to verse 1 and remind ourselves of the context in which this song appears. So chapter 15, verse 1, John sees in heaven another great and marvellous sign. Seven angels with the seven last plagues. Seven here the number of God, the number of fullness, the number of completeness, what belongs to God. And John sees seven angels with the seven last plagues, last because with them God's wrath is completed. This is the fullness of God's wrath. This is the complete pouring out of all of God's judgment. And verse 2 John saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and over the number of his name. They held harps given them by God and sang the song of Moses, the servant of God and the song of the Lamb. Great and marvellous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways, King of the ages. As they see... The fullness of God's wrath and judgment, they burst into song. Song praising God for all of his works and his judgments. They echo the song of the Israelites when God brought them out of Egypt and through the Red Sea. And as God saved the Israelites, he then covered the sea back in and drowned the Egyptians. Moses and the Israelites burst into song at praise of God, praising God for all of his works and his judgment. Here in Revelation, those who belong to Jesus, those who see all of his works and judgment, they praise God for who he is and what he has done. No one breaks out of tune to accuse God of injustice or wrong. 
No one can walk up to God and size him up. So hang on, God. I know better than you, and I think you've got it wrong. No, the complete opposite is the case, and as the vision continues in verses 5 to 8, we're reminded of Isaiah the prophet when he had a vision into the temple of God, and God's robe filled the entire temple. And the angels who were round about were crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the thing that overwhelmed Isaiah as he was confronted by God's holiness was to say, Woe am I, I am ruined for I am unclean. He was in no place to size God up. God's holiness sets him apart from humanity in every way. He is eternal. God is infinitely wise. God is perfectly good. God's judgment and all his works are without accusation. So when the bowls of wrath are revealed in chapter 16, one of the angels who's entrusted with pouring out the bowl, can you get any closer to that than seeing God's judgment, than being the angel who is responsible for holding it and carrying it and pouring it out on the earth? Angel number four... We see in chapter 16, verse 4, what he has to say with this up-close experience of God's judgment and wrath. What does he say in chapter 16, verse 5? You are just in these judgments. You who are and who were the Holy One because you have so judged For they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. As we get this vision into heaven, the dominant voices praise God for all his works and judgment. But what about those on whom God's wrath and judgment falls? What do they have to say? What's their response? Well, let's trace through their response in chapter 16. Uh, Chapter 16, the context here, verse 1, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go, pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. Uh, The bowls here are another replay of God's judgment in this age between Jesus' death, resurrection and ascension and Jesus' uh, return. They kind of run parallel to the other symbols of judgment that we have seen in Revelation. Uh, The seals, like the seals on an envelope, or the seals of the trumpets, each one is a replay of history from a different perspective, a different angle. And here, the, and each one has a different uh, focus. And the bowls are particularly focused in on the rightness of God's judgment, God's justice in judgment. And as we read these, pl- these uh, bowls with their plagues, the background again is Exodus uh, with the plagues that came on Egypt. And so let's look out for the response of those on whom these judgments fall. 
Uh, Bowl number one is in verse two, which the judgment is painful sores coming on those who belong to the beast, to the devil, and those who worship him. Bowl number two in verse three talks about the sea being turned to blood. Bowl number three in verse four talks about rivers being turned to blood. And the angel says, those on whom this judgment falls are those who are not innocent. Verse 6, they are those who have shed the blood of your saints and the prophets and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. Bowl 4, verses 8 and 9, the sun burns people and the response on whom this judgment falls is in verse 9. They were seared by the intense heat and they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. They hate God. Bowl number five is in verses 10 and 11. It's a judgment of darkness, but not a darkness that brings restful sleep, a darkness that brings agony. So much agony that it says here they will want to gnaw their tongues. Their response in verse 11, they curse the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. Bowl number six, it comes in verse number 12, where there's a dry river. And from this dry river comes evil spirits that look like frogs. The important part is not to get hung up on the frogs, but on what the frogs do, and that is to gather people, gather the kings representing the rulers of the nations, the peoples that are opposed to God, that gather them for the great day of the Lord. The great day of the Lord is the day of wrath and judgment, the final day of judgment, the day when Jesus comes unexpected like a thief. Bowl number 7, verse 17, comes with lightning and thunder and earthquake and 50 kilogram hailstones as the cup filled with the wine of the fury of wrath is given to Babylon. Babylon is a symbol for the world that is opposed to God. And we read of their response. Follow with me please in verse 20. Chapter 16, verse 20. Every island fled away and the mountains could not be found. From the sky huge hailstones of about a hundred pounds each fell upon men and they cursed God on account of the plague of hail because the plague was so terrible. What's the response of those on whom God's wrath and judgment falls? They hate God. They curse God. They refuse to repent. They refuse to acknowledge that their ways are wrong. But they don't accuse God of wrong. They don't accuse God of injustice. When they come face to face with God's judgment, they have no argument for appeal. They have no grounds for leniency. They make no claim of injustice. 
Now, you and I are very sensitive to injustice, aren't we? Some of us are not very good at hiding that sensitivity. When injustice comes along, we want to call it out. We get upset about it. We want to go on a rampage against it. Like an eight-year-old boy who thinks he's wrongly penalised at footy. Or presidential candidate who thinks the election is rigged. We are very sensitive to injustice. Is God unjust in his wrath and judgment? We need to ask, how can a loving God send people to hell? Well, God's wrath and judgment is his holy response to our injustice. All that we have done that is evil on God's scale of evil is deserving of judgment. I'm going to say that sentence again, it's an important one for us to understand. All that we've done that is evil on God's scale of evil is deserving of judgment. And what's evil on God's scale? It's every second, every moment of our life where God is not honoured. Think back over the moment since you woke up this morning. Are there any minutes or seconds where God wasn't honoured? What about last night? What were you doing before you went to bed? What did you go to sleep dreaming about? Earlier in the day, what was the focus of your Saturday? Whatever it was, whether you were working or studying, resting, sporting, hanging out with friends or family... Was it God honouring? We are lovingly made by God to live in relationship with Him and honour Him. We see that set up on the first pages of the Bible as God made the man and the woman and placed them in the garden in relationship with Him that they might honour Him. And our determination to do life without God gets us what we wish for. And what we deserve, wrath and judgment. We see that in the man and the woman in the garden. They wanted to do life without God. They get what they wish for. They are put out of relationship with God. As we have a determination to do life without God, we get what we wish for. Wrath and judgment, every bit of what we read in Revelation 15 and 16. So that no one, not one of us, can accuse God of injustice on this count. We have no case for leniency. We have no grounds for appeal. But there is one place of refuge from God's wrath. With Jesus. Did you notice when the seven angel pours out the final bowl... When all God's wrath has come, when God's wrath comes in all its fullness, there's a voice from the throne in heaven which says, verse 17, it is done. 
There has been a time in history, already past, when all God's wrath came. The fullness of God's wrath was poured out and the slain lamb on the cross cried, it is finished. It is done. You see, and when Jesus came face to face with God's judgment, when the full force of God's wrath came upon him, he had no reason to accuse God of wrong. He didn't cry out saying, God, you're unjust. How can a loving God do this? No, as Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath, he made no appeal for justice, but called all people to find forgiveness and safety from that wrath in him. That is perfect judgment, perfect justice, perfect love. Where does that leave you? Perhaps you're not a Christian. And perhaps for you, the question, how can a loving God send people to hell, is the kind of question that keeps you away from God, wants to keep God at a distance. Perhaps you're somebody who wants to accuse God of being unjust. I want to encourage you this morning, if that is you, to listen in to the testimony of those who have tasted God's wrath and see that they raise no objection. Look to Jesus, who bore the full force of God's wrath and he has no problem with God's justice. I want to encourage you to listen to the invitation that Jesus holds out to find refuge from his wrath. Will you accept his invitation? In the Vital Info news sheet this morning, there's a prayer printed there. The kind of prayer that I'd invite you to pray if you are not yet a Christian. And you might like to have a look over it now because we're going to pray it in a little while. But maybe you're here and you are a Christian who has asked this question before and felt uncomfortable about this question. How can a loving God send people to hell? I hope that what with, you, with what you see this morning that you might know with even greater confidence that God is just and God is loving. And through knowing that you might be even more determined to stick with Jesus... Remember, revelation isn't given to us to create fear and anxiety about future and things that we don't understand, but given by the Apostle John as a warm pastoral letter to equip and enable us for sticking with Jesus in hard times. And if this is you, I hope that you might be a little bit more confident in knowing God's justice and love be more determined to stick with Jesus. And I invite you to make the prayer that's printed for us this morning your prayer, that you might keep sticking with Jesus.
But maybe you're someone here this morning who has been wavering in your trust with Jesus. And as we thought a moment ago about the times this morning or last night or yesterday, and if we thought back a little bit further, you, your life is not just littered with moments of not honouring God, but they're starting to see great big clusters. Your trust in Jesus and your obedience to Him is waning. I want to encourage and urge you to come back to Jesus for His forgiveness. Come to Him in faith to know the help of His Spirit to work in you to live a life that brings honour and glory to God. The prayer that is printed is the prayer that you can pray this morning to come back to Jesus in trust and obedience. I'm going to pray that prayer out loud now. And if you'd like to make this your prayer, you can echo it in your own heart and mind and come to Jesus. As we finish this prayer, we're going to move into sharing the Lord's Supper together. A symbolic meal given by Jesus that says, It is finished. It is done. We have safety from his wrath. Perfect judgment, perfect justice, perfect love. Let's pray. Lord God, I admit that you are perfectly loving, just and good. I don't know how to hold all that together in my head, but I have no accusation against you. I confess that you have every reason to accuse me. Even in the last day I have not honoured you. I deserve your wrath and judgment. So I turn to Jesus and put my trust in him. Please forgive me. Please help me to keep trusting, keep turning to Jesus. Please help me to honour you in every moment of my life. Thank you for Jesus' death and resurrection in my place. Please teach and help me to sing. Great and marvellous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the Ages. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. Amen. As we share together in the Lord's Supper this morning, I'm going to share with us a number of readings from the book of John. Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. 
For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh which I will give for the life of the world. Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, And I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died. But whoever whoever feeds on this bread, the bread of faith, will live forever. Whether you've been a Christian for years... Or maybe for you today is the first time you put your trust in Jesus. If you shared in praying the prayer that we shared a moment ago, I want to invite you to share in this symbolic meal given by Jesus to remember his death and resurrection and to affirm our faith in him. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me.